Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music, the tall tales, true stories, and current goings-on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter and swim buck-naked in summer. Welcome to episode 29 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom with co-producer Vera Grubbs. We're focusing on the community this month and we'll be bringing you several different voices who will talk about their organizations and what they do for people in Brown County. There's a round table discussion about honeybees with some members of the 10 o'clock Bee Line Bee Club. And we're pleased to present some music from the recent fingerstyle guitar competition. Rick Fedick shares some of his poetry and unique observations, and Dave Seastrom has another essay. In our first segment, we begin with Dave Seastrom, bees, Jeff Tryon weighing in on what it means to be a Brown Countyan, and we bring you Brian Henke on his 28-string harp guitar performing Daydreaming from the recent fingerstyle competition. This is Dave Seastrom of the Brown County Hour. This month's show has a central theme, people helping people. We didn't intend for this to happen, it's just the way it worked out. Brown County has a long history of hard times and an equally long history of neighbors helping one another. Today, several organizations are reaching out to improve the lives of everyone in the county, and this month we will share the stories of three organizations that are making a difference. In one of our pieces, we interview Larry Pujot. He's the CEO of the Brown County Community Foundation. This is part of their mission statement. The foundation studies the needs and awards resources that improve the community in areas of service, education, health, environment, and the arts. That's a mouthful. But from scholarships to helping support the We the People team, their impact is felt throughout the entire community. Nothing is too small or too large for them to tackle and their good work has touched and improved the lives of many people here in the county. In one small example, the Brown County Hour is a recent recipient of a Community Foundation grant. This money will provide much-needed equipment for our new studio at the Brown County History Center and will make a significant impact on the sound quality of the show. The members of the Brown County Hour team would like to express our sincere gratitude to the Community Foundation. We intend to do everything in our power to live up to the trust they have in us, and we're looking forward to expanding our outreach in the community. We also have an interview with school board member John Mills. If you think about it, nothing is more fundamental than education. The road to expanded opportunity begins with a quality education. And here's another example of how people help one another. Our schools are facing hard times. But because of the work John and the other school board members are doing, the devoted teachers and administrators, and the countless hours of volunteers, little old Brown County has achieved national recognition and statewide awards. We round this out with a discussion about the Brown County Literacy Coalition with Bob Gustin. This is a group of volunteers who work to improve the quality of life. 
They're deeply involved with the other two organizations I mentioned, and they offer their services to everyone from young to old. Ultimately, everyone benefits from the activities of these groups. There are many other service organizations, and in time, we hope to tell each of their stories, but today, we'll focus on these three. You might ask yourself, how are these groups helping me personally, and what good do they do for the general population? For the most part, we'll let these folks tell their own story, but I would like to add my own two cents. The Brown County Hour is comprised of five volunteers, and we operate on a shoestring budget. As I mentioned, the Community Foundation grant we just received will improve our production quality. One of our missions is to reach out to the community and record the personal and family history of people in Brown County. As we develop this program, each contributor will be offered a CD of their recording. With the new equipment we'll be able to purchase, those recordings will be first rate and hopefully become treasured family heirlooms. History is made by ordinary people. But there's nothing ordinary about remembering the people we love, especially in their own words. Both of my children went to Brown County Schools. I always felt they received personal attention they needed, and the environment was safe and inviting. But even if I didn't have children, I benefit from living in a community of educated people. There are many examples I could cite, but the one that comes to mind is, the more education a person has, the less likely they are to go to prison. This affects all of us because we end up being the victims. On a more personal note, I benefited from a literacy intervention when I was nine years old. I somehow managed to get to the fourth grade without the functional ability to read. I was raised in a good home, and both my parents were avid readers, so I don't fit into the standard stereotype. I simply fell through the cracks. My fourth grade teacher found me out. She met me after school and donated her own time to help me. Thanks to her personal attention and my mom's deep involvement, by the end of the school year, I was reading above my grade level. This completely changed my life, and that's what we're talking about. People helping people. This is Dave Seastrom with the Brown County Hour. See you next time. This evening we have a group of beekeepers with us from the 10 o'clock Beeline Beekeepers Club. And uh, first off, let me introduce Chuck Wills. Hi Chuck, good to see you again. Thank you, great to be here. And I know that you and uh, our other guests, Mark Partridge and Tony Godin, have all been beekeepers for a while. Why don't you talk about bees in Brown County? What kind of situations are you facing? I've been a beekeeper since 2008, and uh, I've had both good luck and bad luck, I think, as most beekeepers have all across the country. So I don't know that the situation in Brown County is really that different than anywhere else in the states. I've had as many as six hives and as few as zero since I started. And uh, zero would be the result of something in terms of, like, tracheomide or...? It's generally the result of bad beekeeper. Oh. Uh, that, that's why I often say beekeeping is as much of an art as it is a science. And uh, sometimes it's all about me learning how to keep the beekeeper out of the way of the bees doing what the bees know how to do. Yeah, I always, uh, when I kept bees, I always felt like they pretty well knew what they were doing. And it was, it was me that interfered with the process. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, I have seen a little bit of disease. I've had one hive that I would classify as colony collapse because they just disappeared. And I had really no idea what happened to them. 
Uh, I've had hives starve over the winter from lack of food. Uh, just a whole array of things that could happen to pretty much any beekeeper. Well, what about you, Tony? How are your bees doing? Well, my bees are doing fine now, but just uh, from a historical standpoint, I started beekeeping about 25 years ago when uh, our daughter's fifth grade teacher, uh, Steve Cole, who used yeah. to be a member of this community, got sure. me interested in beekeeping and uh, invited me to go out with him one Saturday just to see what he was doing. And I thought to myself, oh, this is a crazy thing, but you know, I'll just go along to humor him. And uh, went along and uh, I got addicted. Yeah. And uh, it does become an addiction. So I, first I got a hive, then I got two hives, and before you know it, you got five hives or six hives. Uh, to be honest with you, if you're, if you're taking care of bees, it doesn't take too much longer to get ready to take care. And in fact, it doesn't take longer at all to get ready to take care of six hives than it does to take care of one hive. There's a procedure that you have to go through. You have to put on your bee suit. You have to get your smoker going. You have to get your hive tools. You have to get the stuff that you're going to need. And I thought to myself, well, I'm doing all of this work for one hive. If I had two hives or three hives, it would be a lot more efficient because I would be spending this amount of time with the prospect of two or three or four hives producing that much more honey. Well, how many hives do you have now? Uh, right now, I have uh, six full-sized hives. I just made six new hives, so I'm up to 12. I'm going through a process where I'm pr trying to produce new queen cells, new queens. Hmm. And just today, as a matter of fact, I grafted 24 new queen cells, and I hope to get at least six new queens. I'd like to have maybe 18 hives. Uh, the reason I'm increasing the number of hives is I just retired from my full-time employment. Now I have time to no. really spend time with the bees, so I figure it's going to take me this long to get ready to do six hives, then it take me this long to get ready to do 12 hives or 18 hives, right? So. Oh. That's right. You know, and uh, it'll be that much more fun. What about you, Mark? I've been keeping bees about uh, 10 years, and I blame uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote the Little House books. <laughs> right. Uh, when my girls were little, we were homeschooling, and we did a homeschool segment on the Little House books. And in Little House in the Big Woods, there's a chapter, Paw in the Bee Tree. So we did a whole unit study on beekeeping, and we went and visited a beekeeper. And, well, my girls grew up and went on, and I'm still stuck on that unit study of beekeeping. <laughs> The girls are gone, but the bees remain. The bees remain. So I've got right now four hives. Like Chuck, I've had as many as six. And uh -huh. uh, last winter was brutal. I lost all six, so I started over this spring. Oh. Yeah, I, I remember it was tricky to leave enough honey for your bees. I mean, you want to take the honey for yourself, but you got to leave more than you think they'll need or they'll starve. Sometimes uh, what we do is we provide extra food over the winter, too. Uh, we, we can produce what are called either candy boards or sugar boards, where right. we take sugar and dissolve it in water, do a little chemical magic, and produce candy. And then we can put a candy board that's the size, external dimensions about the same size as the hive, maybe two inches thick. If you put that on top of the hive at the beginning of the winter, then if they run short on stores, there's an emergency food source for them. Lots of beekeepers do that. I did that last winter. Uh, in addition to insulating my hives, it started out with eight, but seven survived. Okay. And the one that didn't survive was only a, a small box, and it was weak going into winter, so yeah. I wasn't that surprised. See, I think the insulation made more of a difference for Tony than the extra food, because my bees that died all still had plenty of honey left, oh. but I think it was just the cold. And talking to other beekeepers, a lot of them had the same problem, where they'd go out there and the bees were just froze out, and there was still plenty of honey left. So back when I was doing it, Italian bees were all the rage. Are you guys still raising Italian bees, or are you drifted into those Russian bees that I hear about? 
Well, I've got some Italians and some Russians and some wild bees that I don't know where they came from. And it, it seems like the Russians maybe eat more over the winter. And that was the variety that uh, actually starved out in the cold last year for me. Well, I heard they had a vodka problem. That could be too. <laughs> Antifreeze, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. What about you, Tony? What kind of bees do you raise? Well, right now I have Italian bees, but you know there are several strains of honeybees. I don't know if everyone knows this or not, but honeybees are not native to North America. Right. The honeybees that we use in North America were brought over with the colonists. Most of the colonists came from Western Europe, and so the Western Europeans at that time were using mostly bees that originated in you know south of the Alps, you know down in Italy and so they were called Italian bees. You know, we've got Russian bees, we've got varieties called Carniolan bees. There are several varieties of bees. I personally use the Italians. As Chuck said, they do eat a lot, but I provided them over the winter with candy boards, and so I figured that I'd give them that emergency source just in case. What about you, Mark? Are you an Italian bee kind of guy? Or? We have Italian bees, but I think what's important to note is that there's really no pure strains. I mean, here in Indiana mm-hmm. especially, right. Tony and I and probably Chuck, we get a lot of our bees that are coming out of Purdue stock, and Greg Hunt okay. at Purdue, Dr. Greg Hunt, he's uh, been working for years to try to breed bees that are more uh, acclimated to the Indiana climate. More of and a Hoosier so, bee, then. A Hoosier bee, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so he's bred Russians with Italians and with along with some other special strains trying to get you know something that's really uniquely suited to our microclimates here in Indiana. A friend of ours, Miss Cindy Steele, publishes a little magazine over in the bustling city of Helmsburg, Indiana, called Our Brown County. I like that phrase, Our Brown County. When I first heard it, I thought of it as a native-born Brown Countyan, saying to the more recently arrived, it's Our Brown County. You just moved here, but it's our Brown County. But now, as time goes by, and and I got to know more folks outside my own little clique, and as I became acquainted with more and more people who had chosen to live here in Brown County, including folks like Ms. Steele and my beautiful wife, I began to look at it in a different way. That phrase, our Brown County. I began to think of it as the more recently arrived people saying to the more native-born people, it's our Brown County. You were just born here by an accident of time and circumstance, but we chose to come here, to live here, to be a part of whatever it is that makes Brown County, Brown County. And the more I dug in on what that really is, what makes Brown County, Brown County, the more I begin to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. We all have our own parameters and tastes and ideas about what we think really is Brown County and what is not. It's my Brown County. No one else sees it in probably the same exact way that I do, and I suppose we're all like that. Any of us, when we set out to really define what makes Brown County, Brown County, We usually end up saying a lot more about ourselves than about any universal truths about this place. This is the true nature of reality. Each of us sees just a glimpse of the totality of the whole, and we each perceive it in our own particular way. And each of us interprets their whole universe, what we each see as reality from what we perceive of that universe. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we each make of it. But now, our individual visions are not mutually exclusive. There are areas where they overlap, 
areas where we all, or most of us, are more or less Brown County-ish. And that's the point where my Brown County becomes our Brown County. But it's still just some small glimpse of the totality of the whole. We'll whittle away at that from time to time, see if we can't get down to the heartwood. pause for station identification. The Brown County Hour is sponsored by Jerseyana Gallery in Nashville, where it's always a state of art. We showcase Indiana artisans of all ages. Check out featured local artists, poets, authors, and musicians in Nashville's only art salon. For more information, call 812-200-3133 or check out their webpage at allthews.jerseyana.org.
You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Welcome back to episode 29 of the Brown County Hour. We open up segment two with a poem by our own Rick Fettig, followed by an interview with Larry Peugeot discussing the Community Foundation. We have a discussion with school board member John Mills, and we close this portion of the show with another selection from the fingerstyle competition presenting Michael Kelsey as he performs something. I have perhaps too often taken the road less traveled. There's brambles and barbs and potholes rarely filled. And if there's miles to go before I sleep on the road less traveled, it appears to be still rocky, bumpy, and shaded by a canopy of unattended trees and forest. Sleep, I guess, is depends on your definition. Sleep, the end of consciousness. It can be a decision to end consciousness, or go or put yourself to sleep. It can be exhaustion, or being exhausted of being tired, or sleep, normally a part of life's cycle. The road up the ladder is full of rungs and rules. Try as you may, you miss a rung, you miss a rule, you swerve to the side and end up on the road less traveled anyway. It's hard to tell if it's one for all or one for all, or that perhaps if you can't pay the toll for the easy road, you're on your own. It's been a long and winding road, but I feel richer for it. Not necessarily in dollars, but certainly in cents. Hi, this is Dave Seaston with the Brown County Hour. And this evening we have Larry Pujot from the Community Foundation with us. So Larry, let's begin by talking about a little bit of the history of how did this organization get started? Well, my understanding, I wasn't here at the time, but um, what I've read about and been told is that a Vision 2010 group that came together that tried to map out a strategic plan for Nashville. Uh, This would have been in the early 90s through 2010. And there was some talk of challenges that the community was facing. And the thing that was missing was a financial arm. In the same period, the Lilly Endowment was making the strategic strategic decision that they thought philanthropy could be delivered better locally. So my understanding was they had these challenge grants, and I think it started out at a million dollars, and they said any county that can raise a million dollars will match it. Lo and behold, within a couple of years, every county in Indiana had a community foundation, (laughs) and Indiana has more community foundations than any other state in the United States. So it started out that way, and then over the years, Lily did five rounds of these kind of match challenges, and counties were able to either match it for an endowment or match it for a facility. I believe some Lily money was involved in the building of the Y. Uh, they had what was called a CAPE grant. The CRC was a result of the CAPE grant here. Mm-hmm. Was so Lily forked up $93 million? Uh, more, more than that. They did five different challenges. The other thing that they did is they started doing a, uh, every county got a, at least one Lily scholarship. Uh, so they've, they've been very generous. The other thing that community foundations are very blessed with is they have a, a support arm. It's called GIFT giving in Indiana for tomorrow. And there's a support staff up there of seasoned foundation people who are like a resource. You can call them up if you have a question or you have a legal issue. They have a a staff lawyer 
Because foundations are set, it's a contract that you have. All the endowments are really owned by the, by the donors. The, the foundation is really just the steward of that money. The foundation belongs to Brown County. So this foundation now has about $8 million. And the majority of that, of that money is tied with 155 endowments. And those endowments support particular projects. All these endowments people have started because they're very passionate about some part of Brown County, some service or some program. And they decide they want to set up an endowment. And that endowment pays out a grant every single year automatically to that agency. Every year, the board of directors decides what the payout's going to be. And it's based on how well the stock market's performed and how much the endowment has grown from new donations and all that. This year, we decided that we would award 4.5%. Even at 4% in 25 years, you've granted out 100% of the original investment, and that money's still sitting there, probably still growing, probably going to continue granting forever. So it's a pretty amazing thing for someone that's thinking long-term and really wants to support an organization. I'll give you a good example of that. The History Center is building this wonderful new uh, museum here, and part of their plan is to have a, a half-million-dollar endowment. Now, they're not putting any money in it right now because they need every penny to finish the, the, the building, but they're wise enough to know that down the road, if they have a half-million dollars and we pay out 4%, they're going to get $20,000 a year every single year for maintenance automatically. Is this type of endowment restricted in any way? Or is this, does it have to be a non-for-profit kind of situation? It or? has to go to a not-for-profit, right, because all, all donations are charitable. We have different type of endowments. There's um, uh, designated endowments that are set up. Someone says, I want to support Mother's Cupboard. There's donor-advised endowments where the donor is told how much money is going out every year and they can decide a different a different person to give it to or a different organization to give it to it every year. There's agency endowments that go to particular agencies. There's field of interest endowments that we usually grant. There's all these different things. So 155 different endowments and every single one of them is, is a pretty interesting story. The Trumper Fund by uh, a gentleman who is deceased now, but his father told him a story when he was growing up that he went to school one day and uh, this kid came in, he was barefoot, and he asked him why he was barefoot, and the kid said, I don't have any shoes. Mr. Trumper took off his shoes and gave them to him because he knew he had another pair of shoes at home. Told his son that story, and his son remembered it. And when his son was older, he set up a fund, a pretty good-sized endowment, and it's to buy shoes for Brown County kids before they go to school. And then another thing that the foundation does is we do community projects through what we call pass-through accounts. They're not endowments. Where they're funds that, that we handle. And a community group like Salt Creek Trail, they want to do a community project, and they want to try and get tax-deductible donations. So they come into the foundation and say, we'd like to open up a pass-through fund. But then they can raise money, and that money tax-deductible because it's coming through the foundation. Millions of dollars is supported projects around this town through those pass-through funds. Do you have a couple of favorite projects? Right now, I'm, I'm actually on a big quest to collecting all the names of all the kids that have gotten scholarships from the foundation. Not only the Lilly Scholarship, but all scholarships. But we don't have a very good record of, of staying in touch with all these, all these graduates. Uh, we're always trying to grow scholarship funds, and I've just had this this thought that wouldn't it be great to get all these kids, um, maybe find a couple champions among them who will do the social media stuff that I can't do, and have a, a Brown County Community Foundation Scholarship Winners Scholarship Fund. I definitely need a better name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to get all those kids doing it and also um, contact their parents and their relatives that watch them walk across the, the stage. But I think it would be really fun to those graduates involved in growing a, a scholarship fund. And, you know, some of them are, I mean, some of them are in their peak earning years. Those are the ones I need to find. <laughs> Exactly. And then the other thing we're talking about doing is youth philanthropy. We're going to try and get into the school system and maybe start a youth philanthropy group, do some training, work with them, start a little club, and then uh, in our annual grant cycle, maybe grant them some money to grant out so they can go through the process and, and realize what, you know, what it's like to try and give away money. It's not as easy as you think. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and what really stimulated that was getting to know the, the We the People. The last couple of years, I was privileged enough to try and help them raise money, and I was our national champions. Yeah, right. Go over and give them checks. But when I met the kids, it was just it was just so encouraging. Transparency. Transparency. 
We are very transparent. We're stewards of, of the Brown County's money. Our 990s on our website. We have uh, obviously all that money in our endowments. Are, all those funds are commingled and they're invested. Uh, lots of committees, volunteer committees. Uh, um, we wouldn't operate without volunteers. We have a volunteer board. We have a finance committee that deals with with the investments. Our meetings are open. People can come in and ask questions, and we're always looking to um, build new partnerships. And we want people to trust what we're doing. How many grants? Have you given out so far this year? We just had our competitive grant cycle where we granted out um, about $80,000 to local not-for-profits. It's based on need, the number of people affected, and it's also based on how well the grants are written. Then we have we had scholarships. I think we handled about $40,000 in scholarships, plus the full Lilly scholarship. Uh, this year, for the first time, we have some money that we've, we've set aside, and we're going uh, to do what's called proactive granting versus reactive granting, our three different things that we're looking at, the environment, health, and education. We're just going to say that we have, uh, we're not exactly sure how much money yet, but it'll be a sizable, it'll be a sizable sum of money, and we'll look for a project to bubble up out of, out of the community. And it'll be a competitive thing again, you know, but if, if a good project comes up, we think it has merit, uh, we're going to fund it. My theory is that if we support the right thing and we publicize it, we make sure that we do effective granting and that a new donors will, will say, well, that's great. I want to support that. Or they'll come in and say, I want to do something that's that in- impactful, but I'm interested in this area. I'm trying to get people to under- uh, understand the value add of the foundation. We're not trying to raise money for the foundation. We're trying to raise money to support our local not-for-profits. That's, that's what we do. Pretty nice job to just go to work and try and figure out how to make things better. If you can pull that off, Larry, my hat's off to you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And this evening we have John Mills, and he's going to discuss his many years on the school board and his perspective on public education in Brown County. Welcome, John. Hi. So why don't you begin with outlining your career on the school board? Well, I was on the board for four years back in the 80s, from 82 to 86. Took 20 years out to forget the pain and to think about what I could have done better. And I got back on the board again, I think it was about 2006. So this is my second term coming near to an end with this next election, I believe. It's worth doing. You're working for kids. I've been on other boards, was briefly on the town council, and you're working for adults. When they get mad at you, You just got to take it. When a parent gets mad and is spitting in my face while he's shouting at me, I can just shut down and think, I'm not working for him. I'm working for his kid, and I'm not going to react. There you go. Talk to us a little bit about the situation our school systems are in. Locally, we're doing quite well. Before I got on the board this time, they already had engaged in an elementary reading program where they switched kids over from reading big, thick tomes to having a whole lot of little storybooks sorted in bins according to reading level. Each kid could progress as he or she was able to, to more difficult reading. That's worked wonders. Probably between six and seven years ago, we discovered in a discussion with the high school teachers that we were doing worse than the state average in the percent passage rate for Algebra One class. Now, I think for two years in a row, we did the best in the state among public schools. Only, I think, two private schools, Braybuff and I forgot which other one, had a higher passage rate than we did, but we were the highest public school. 
What would cause that turnaround? After we found out the problem we had, David Schaefer suggested calling it a math initiative. And we realized the problem wasn't a high school problem. It started all the way back in first grade. And so we revamped our math program. One of the uh, quantitative things that they did was after giving a period of math earlier in the day, they went back and had half a period of math in the afternoon Mm. to kind of stick it it in your brain. That helped a lot. And now we have STEM labs, science, technology, math, and engineering in every school. And some people are suggesting that you should add an A to that and bring art into it also. Well, we're rebuilding the uh, high school art room right now, completely gutting it and rebuilding it. We still have art teachers and music teachers and have had all the way through when other school systems were kicking them out to save a little bit of money. Speaking of money, we've had problems. In 2009, when the state decided to stop collecting property tax to run the schools, but do it all with taxes from the state, we realized that meant that the state people in Indianapolis were going to tell us how to run the schools from that point on, and they have. They've taken control largely away from local school boards, thinking that sitting in their desks in Indianapolis, they know better than we do what should go on in Brown County, and I think they're simply wrong. They're thinking urban and we're rural. Big difference in the people and what they need to know, what they already know. So we've had a hard time financially, but we've had the sense to see the crunch coming a few years early and begin conserving in advance so that when we hit the wall, we didn't have to riff a bunch of teachers. But no teachers were riffed, and at the same time in Monroe County, they riffed more than 80 teachers in that same year. We're on hard times again. The state cut us back 5% of our general fund each of two years in a row, and we've had a slightly declining enrollment and we get money to run the schools based upon the number of kids enrolled. So it squeezed us again, but we did a rather creative project of reorganizing the use of the buildings. We now have an intermediate fifth and sixth school and three elementaries, whereas we had four elementaries before. Now that's increased class size. Unfortunately, that's the negative side. But the positive side is we were able to conserve money without firing teachers by doing that. Some people didn't like it. We held lots of public meetings and encouraged everyone to speak out at those meetings about a whole range of possible changes we might make. And we listened to them. We did it probably six or more times. Let's talk about the, the, the we the people, yeah. which is just incredible. Two yeah. years in a row. Year after champions. year. Mm-hmm. Those kids study that stuff endlessly. History, American history. There have been some trial runs done in the high school auditorium. I went and watched one of them. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, they're doing great. We've had the good fortune to interview a couple of those kids, and they are. They're amazing. Starting in the elementary school, they're working with 
robotics. We went to the elementary school and watched them. The robot was running into something, and here's a fifth grade girl down on the floor with a laptop reprogramming the robot so it wouldn't run into the wall. That's fabulous. Yeah. High school robotics class a few years back went to a competition around the state that was held in Columbus and they walked in normally in sneakers and Levi's and t-shirts. The other teams had matching uniforms and looked down their noses at the Brown County kids. Guess who went home with the prize? <laughs> Brown County was hey, champs. T-shirts and, they did and it, blue jeans And match. they did it for at least two more years. I Maybe they're still doing it. Yeah. I don't I mean being champs. Yeah. Well, it's really impressive. I mean, we're a very small county. We're a poor county. To have this type of success, obviously the school system's doing something right. Yes, they are. And maybe we can't afford to have as varied a program at the high school as a larger school could. But in the elementary school, you got so many kids in a room, and if the teacher's good, it doesn't have to be a larger school system, does it? Now we pause for station identification. Brown County Hour is underwritten by Riverlight Yoga, where you will find expert instruction in a completely equipped, newly enlarged studio. We offer a variety of classes with individual instruction a specialty. Gift certificates in any denomination are available. See riverlightyoga.com for full information. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Welcome back to episode 29 of the Brown County Hour. We begin our final segment with the second portion of the B Roundtable discussion 
followed by an interview with Bob Gustin as he discusses the Community Literacy Coalition. Chris Curtin shares another poem, and Rick brings us another Brown County News update. We close the show with another fine music selection performed by the winner of the youth division, Parker Hastings. He plays his version of Back Home Again in Indiana. So how much trouble have you guys had with the trachea mite? I personally have had no trouble at all with the tracheal mite. There's another mite called the Varroa mite. Right. It's scientific and Varroa destructor. That's the mite that's probably giving us most of the problems nowadays. And it's not just the mite. The, the, the mite. This, this piggybacks on the back of the bee. Pi- yeah, but it's not. It's not killing. It's not the the damage that they do to the adult bees because with the right, female they mite. Right. The, they supplant the eggs. Well, the female mite lays her eggs in a cell where the developing bee larva is. And so when the mites are growing up, they suck the juices out of the larval developing bee and kill that bee. And of course, they're producing more mites and fewer bees. The other thing about the mites, though, is that they carry viruses, too. And we think that those viruses may be just as harmful, if not more harmful, than the actual physical effects of the mites on the bees. Well, I I can remember reading that uh, the healthier your hive is, the more resistant it is to just anything that comes down the pike. That's true. That's exactly That's true. Right. That's yeah. right. I mean, with all the pests that have been coming along, like small hive beetles, probably the newest pest that we've had to deal with. But it's exactly like you said, the antidote is maintaining a strong, healthy hive. You lost all your hives. Did you requeen and start up new this spring? Or? I bought uh, two packages earlier in the spring, and then as soon as they got going, then I bought some queens and I split those two packages, so that's why I'm up to four now. Talk about the club. Do you guys share like a honey extractor, or you know, do you pool your resources? Or Well, the club is a loose organization of beekeepers. We, like to, we have no officers, no dues, no formal agenda. Sounds like Brown County to me. Yeah. <laughs> but what we get is we get excellent meetings. We had a meeting last night and we had probably, what, 26? About that. 26 people at the meeting and also some people brought their children. We talked about several different subjects. One of the main purposes of the club is to mentor what we call newbies. <laughs> so if you're interested, and we advertise in the Brown County Democrat, if you're interested in talking about bees, you want to know about bees, if you're interested in starting a beehive, you know, this is one of the places where you can come. Not only can you ask any question that you want to ask, you can have somebody come out and help you get started with your beehives. And we do that. We also have very good relations with the Indiana apiarist, uh, the, in English, the State apiary, right. state, state apiary inspector. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, Which has nothing to do with primates. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, Apis mellifera is the scientific name for the honeybee, so Apis, you know, right. apiary. Yeah, you know. Of all the things going on with beekeeping, is there a central issue that you're dealing with, or is it just fun with bees in the apiary? Yes and yes. If it's not fun, why do it? Uh, second thing is that there are characteristics that we are dealing with. Mark mentioned that we are currently, through the efforts of people like Dr. Greg Hunt and the Bee Laboratory at Purdue University, we, that is beekeepers here in Indiana, are trying to breed strains of bees that are more adapted 
to the Midwestern climate than the ones that are normally purchased from Florida and Georgia and California and Hawaii and these other nice warm places where people can get started in February, you know, right. raising bees and we have to wait until May. What we're trying to do is to raise a strain or a, it won't even be official variety, but just a, a kind of bee that has better survival characteristics here in the Midwest. You got to remember, bees are not domesticated. Bees are wild insects. And all we beekeepers do is provide a home for them. And what we do is we manipulate them and take advantage of certain biological characteristics that they happen to have. Like bee space. Like bee space. Mm -hmm. And if you give bees the resources to make honey and some place to put it, they will make honey until the cows come home. And they will not stop until they run out of space. And then okay. if they run out of space, then they'll do something that you don't want them to do. They'll probably swarm and go and try and find more space. Gorge themselves on all that honey they'd put away and fly away from the hive. So what you want to do is to make sure that they always have a little more space than they've filled. And if you give them, if you keep them with a little bit of empty space, then this kind of dissuades them from swarming. And sometimes no matter what you do, they're going to swarm. Mm -hmm. because the that's the natural just, biological yeah. way that right. they reproduce is by swarming. And so trying to stop swarming completely is like trying to stop your teenager, you know, from the back seats. And <laughs> there you go. Good luck with that. <laughs> Good luck with that. You, know, uh, you do the best you can. And Oh, no. As a carpenter, uh, I've had to remove bees from the interior walls of people's homes. And they didn't, you know, the way they figured it out is that there was a wet spot on the drywall and someone had the creative intellect to taste it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of a leap, but uh, you know, it was clearly honeybees. So you guys make honey, and you use it for yourself, and you give it to your family and friends. Is there any commercial aspect in this? Do you guys pull your resources and sell honey to a market? or? Well, I, I've sold a little bit of honey locally, but considering the expense of maintaining a hive and replacing dead colonies, uh, it, it's always going to be a money-losing activity. Okay. It, it's really more the, the fun and the art and really trying to help the environment by helping the bee. So your gardens do very well then. Absolutely. Do you, do you plant things for your bees like clover or? Uh, I have not. I noticed that when I had the beehives that our apple tree and our pear tree had way more fruit. Well, I used to see lots of wild bees in the forest and it's a rare thing now. Mm -hmm. In fact, some of the bees I had were these dark chocolate little bees and they were just as mean. Man, you couldn't get near those hives. They just, they had a devil streak in them for whatever reason. The Italian bees were always legend to be friendlier and easier to get along with. I don't know, do you guys have that kind of experience? Do you, you capture wild hives from time to time? Well, uh, as, as Mark said earlier, we're never sure exactly, you know, what the genetic mix is in the bees that we have. But we try to maintain bees that are gentle. Not only does Dr. Greg Hunt and other bee breeders try to uh, raise queens that will survive in the Midwest, but there's, there are at least three characteristics that we're looking for in bees. If we want to, we're, we're practicing what's called artificial selection. We're, we're doing our own little evolutionary thing with the bees. We want the bees to be gentle. We want them to produce honey and we'd like them to be resistant to the varroa mite. If mm. we could get those three characteristics in the bees that we use, you know, as to, for honey production, then our lives would be magnificent. Now, you there know? you go. <laughs> the, the, the hearty Hoosier honeybee, then. Yeah. Uh, 
If someone is interested in your club, how can they contact you? When are the meetings? Is there notice in the paper or? We usually have a notice every time there's going to be a meeting, upcoming meeting, it'll be in the Democrat. We also have a website that's 10 o'clockbeeline.org and we meet the second Monday of each month, usually at the Brown County Library if we can get the room. Otherwise, it may be at the County Extension Office. At what time? 7 p.m. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. Is there anything else you would like to add to the conversation? Eat more honey. Eat more <laughs> honey. All right. This is Dave Seaster with the Brown County Hour. Thank you so much for coming in. This evening we have Bob Gustin with us, and he's here to talk about the Brown County Literacy Coalition. Hi, Bob. Hello. Thanks for inviting our group on. Well, why don't you talk about your project and what it's about? Well, the Brown County Literacy Coalition was uh, founded in 2000 uh, as a 501c3 tax-exempt organization. We have uh, offices in the lower level of the Brown County Library. We rely on volunteers for uh, most of our work. Last year, we had 53 volunteers who contributed more than 7,000 service hours. Of that, about 6,200 of those were devoted to tutoring children. We also do adult tutoring by appointment. We recently turned the tutoring of inmates at the county jail over to the Career Resource Center. The mission of the Brown County Literacy Coalition is really just to improve the literacy of residents in the county. We work with uh, diverse groups to help uh, people improve their reading and writing and comprehension, and that's going to result down the road in better paying jobs and an increased standard of living. Being a coalition, we work with other groups and organizations in in Brown County. The library has been a really good partner for us. Uh, The Dolly Parton Imagination Library Group, Community Foundation, the Historical Society, the Humane Society. We've had a program where uh, uh, volunteers bring dogs in to read. uh, Children can read to a pet because kids are more relaxed when they're reading to an animal than they are to an adult. Local woodworkers have built uh, little free libraries around the county. We have one at the IGA store in Nashville, one at Mother's Cupboard, one at the Gatesville store, and people can drop off books there or pick up books. Uh, It's free. We also work with the RAPS, the uh, Writers, Readers, and Poets, uh, local churches, and a lot of other businesses. Uh, Among our activities that the Brown County Literacy Coalition sponsors, we have a community book read. We have a literacy festival in May down on the Village Green. Uh, It's kind of a fun event. Uh, We have different uh, organizations set up. Again, we're giving away free books. Our annual book sale is coming up uh, August 29th and 30th. Uh, that's the Friday and Saturday before Labor Day. It's going to be 9 to 5 at the lower level of the library. Thousands of gently used books. Uh, at, at ridiculously low prices. At ridiculously low prices. There will be some uh, vintage books, children's books, all kinds of books. It's one of two fundraisers that we have. Uh, the other one uh, is new this year. We previously had had uh, the Mardi Gras. So instead we uh, have an online auction that we are setting up. We have work by local artists, uh, vacation trips, autograph books, much more. And that is at biddingforgood.com. We'll also be selling book baskets. Uh, these make good gifts. This year we started a new program called Read to Learn, aimed at helping parents get their children off to a fast We're rolling it out soon. It will include a locally produced video, which gives helpful information on how to 
interact with kids age zero to three. That's important because 85% of the cognitive brain development takes place in those first three years of life, and it's easier to teach children those first three years. If they fall behind, by the time they get to school, it's very difficult to catch up. And if they're not on reading level by grade three, it's almost impossible. In fact, there have been studies, uh, and I read that the state of Indiana at least partly determines how many beds they will need in their state prisons by the number of children who are not on grade level for reading on the third grade. What is the state of literacy in Brown County? We can judge by scores on standardized tests that we get in the school system, which would show us we are probably about average for the state of Indiana. Uh, I think, however, that there are facets that don't show up on the standardized tests. Right, like adult illiteracy? Adult illiteracy, I think, is a particular problem in some parts of Brown County. Adults who cannot read or cannot write very well are often reluctant to admit that and find workarounds. Uh, We try to make it easy for them to come to the Brown County Literacy Coalition and say, hey, I need some help learning how to read. All of our tutors get training, and we have a standard program for tutors. So, Bob, how did you get involved in this project? Well, I've uh, been a journalist for 40 years, editor of the Republican Columbus from 1999 to 2011 when I retired. And it uh, was really a selfish motive, I think. Uh, As a journalist, as a newspaper man, I want people to read. And I want people to like to read because that's the future of our business. After I retired, I live here in Brown County, so it made sense to join the Brown County Literacy Coalition. So if someone was interested in volunteering in your organization, how can they get a hold of you? Well, there are several ways to do that. Uh, We do have an office in the uh, basement of the library. Phone number is uh, 988-6960. You could email us at literacy underscore coalition at yahoo.com. Or we have a Facebook page. What's the name on the Facebook page? It's Brown County Literacy Coalition. Excellent. Let's talk about book donations. Well, we uh, we give away a lot of books, and we also sell a few books. We're always in need of donations. They can be dropped off uh, at our office in the basement of the Brown County Library. We also have the little free libraries around the county, and they can be dropped off there. Uh, you can switch your books for new books at the little free libraries. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your coming in this evening. Thank you. This is Chris Curtin with a poem called The New Bridge. At last they have made the road safe for travel. There were a dozen or more on either side of the road, tall, stately, robust young sycamores crowded together in two straight lines hugging the road. In summer it was like driving through a tunnel, the huge mottled bark trees with sun-drenched yellow-green leaves dappled and dancing in the breeze, Glowing so, they seemed to produce a sunlight of their own that they would release back into the atmosphere at dusk in a golden glow. Between the rows of trees was an old green iron bridge, partly rusted now. One was forced because of the narrow old bridge and the poor visibility caused by the trees to slow down, losing precious seconds in the race to be someplace else. The people in charge of such things came in with the chainsaws and bulldozers, and the offending trees were removed. Now the new wider bridge enables the driver to speed through that 100-yard straight stretch safely and securely, content with the knowledge that his field of vision will not be marred by those damned sycamore trees. 
And now, with another Brown County News update with Rick Fettig. The local feed store has a new program going on, so they would like, if you see any roadkill at all, to call them at BR549. They have a program where they're recycling this roadkill and they're making dog food out of it. Dog gets all the protein it needs and it gets some organ meat, just be a better dog for it. They're working on a cat food formula, but it seems to stimulate a lot of hairballs, so they still need to work on that. And that buffalo's been sighted again, and some skinny dippers were shooed off from Bear Wallow, and Ken Berry reported that the coyotes got his three cats one at a time. And someone from Possum Trot Ridge reported at least two new litters of possum babies. I want to thank my family and friends for coming out to support me. It's been a lot of fun. So, so I'm going to play one now that I've heard Chet Atkins play, and this is his arrangement of Back Home Again in Indiana. Thanks for tuning in to episode 29 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and broadcast the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. You can stream this or any of our shows from our website, browncountyhour.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out our Woodwatch page devoted to informing the public about the situation our forest lands are facing and be sure to like us on Facebook. This show was produced by Jeff Foster, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. It would be mighty dry without you, pal. You've been 
listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.